WORT Summer Festival is coming. Join us at Warner Park on Sunday, May 21st from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. We'll have a wide variety of live music. We'll also have food and craft vendors, an arts activity area, and plenty of space in beautiful Warner Park. Find out more information at WORTFM.org. See you there. This is Stacy Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. A bipartisan group of Wisconsin lawmakers is looking to make open alcohol containers illegal while driving ATVs and UTVs. Republican Representative Jeff Mursaw of Crivitz was surprised to hear it's not illegal to drink while driving off-road vehicles. The new legislation would implement what some consider to be a common-sense law. Some municipalities have already banned carrying open containers of alcohol on ATVs, but those bans only apply on roads that regular vehicles travel on. The new measure would apply to trails and other public areas as well. U.S. Federal Judge William Connolly signed today, signaled today that he wouldn't shut down the Enbridge Line 5 pipeline, denying requests from the Bad River Band of Lake Superior Chippewa. The Wisconsin tribe asked for an emergency ruling to shut down the pipeline after large chunks of river riverbank eroded away near the pipeline. In some areas, more than 20 feet of riverbank has fallen away in the past month. Connolly said that the tribe needed to show it was acting in, quote, good faith before a shutdown happens. Tribal officials have not allowed Enbridge to reinforce land or place sandbags around the area. The Bad River tribe sued Enbridge in 2019 to remove Line 5 from tribal land. Connolly said that he may order a shutdown at some point, but he wasn't convinced it was the only option as of now. Wisconsin Farm Conservation Programs will receive double the amount of money due to a new federal investment to combat climate change. The Inflation Reduction Act allocated nearly $20 billion to the National Resource Conservation Service, or NRCS, over the next five years, which means Wisconsin farmers will receive funds to protect soil, reduce runoff, and improve water quality. The Environmental Quality Incentives is one such program. They help farmers address resource problems, such as planting cover crops to prevent soil erosion. Similarly, the Conservation Stewardship Program rewards farmers who pursue conservation practices. The NRCS is quickly adding staff to assist in distributing the new funds to local projects. Roughly $7 million will head to Wisconsin this year alone for the conservation groups. Smoke from Canadian wildfires has prompted the Department of Natural Resources to issue air quality advisories for much of southern Wisconsin. WKOW reports an orange advisory will take effect from midnight Friday to midnight Saturday for Columbia, Dane, Dodge, Grant, Green, Iowa, Jefferson, Marquette, Rock, Sauk, and Walworth counties. Under an orange advisory, air can be unhealthy for people with asthma or lung disease. An open records request to the Sun Prairie School District will not go forward until the law firm requesting the records pays an estimated $11,000 in costs. 
according to a district official. The records include about six weeks in correspondence from staff and school board members about an incident where a transgender student disrobed in front of four freshman girls in a high school locker room. The Wisconsin State Journal reports the conservative law firm, the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, requested the records concerning the March 3rd incident on April 4th. And the school district lawyer, Lori Lubinsky, says the district will not proceed on the request until it's paid the hefty sum. Will has not indicated whether they will pay the fee or sue the district to lower the cost. And now on to today's top stories. As Wisconsin residents continue to grow older, the need for caregivers both at home and in nursing homes will continue to grow. But according to one industry projection, the state will be nearly 20,000 registered nurses, short 20,000 registered nurses by 2024. Yesterday, a coalition of caregiving organizations released their latest survey on the state of caregiving shortage in Wisconsin, showing that conditions for those who need help are only worsening. WRT producer Nate Wiggyhout has more. We hold it together with, with with hopes and dreams and duct tape, but it, it I, I think anybody on the outside that was looking in on it would be like, "What the heck is this mess you made?" Mm-hmm. But like it's you're just taking pieces from wherever you can find support and toggling it together so that so that I can stay home and live outside of a facility. That's Andy Thane, who spoke at a press conference yesterday about how the shortage of at-home caregivers in Wisconsin has affected his life. The event was put on by the Survival Coalition, a group of organizations across the state advocating for people with disabilities, to release the results of their latest survey of caregivers in Wisconsin. The survey asked people with disabilities, their family members, and caregivers themselves about the current state of the caregiver industry in Wisconsin. The survey received around 300 responses. Tamara Jackson, legislative liaison with the Wisconsin Board for People with Developmental Disabilities, says that the results are grim. The biggest jump for us as a survival coalition is the number of people who are saying, I am worried that I will be forced out of my home, not because I can't live there independently, but because I can't get the workers to support me at the level I need. And if I'm forced into a facility, which, by the way, also has its own shortage of workers, I may not be able to get back out. 62% of people with disabilities who responded to the survey said that they are worried that they won't be able to stay in their home if their caregiver shortage continues. And 45% said that if that happens, they may be forced to move into a nursing home. Even those who are able to live in their own homes are being seriously affected by the shortage. 18% of people with disabilities surveyed said that they had been stuck either in their bed or in a wheelchair because they don't have someone to help them. And 21% said that they have not been able to perform basic tasks like eating or using a toilet due to lack of help. According to a 2022 report from the Wisconsin Assisted Living Association, there were over 23,000 open caregiver jobs in Wisconsin last year and not nearly enough people to fill those positions. Because of the lack of caregivers across the state, family members have been forced to spend more time caring for their loved ones. 78% of family members who responded said that they had to spend most of their time filling in for missing caregivers or coordinating with agencies to find care. 
The shortage is affecting other job fields as well. 50% of families said that they had to either decrease their work hours or quit their jobs altogether to be able to care for their family members. That was the case for Savannah Bertrand, a parent of two young children with disabilities in Eau Claire. She says that because her children need extra help, normal daycare is impossible. Because of this, my husband had to quit his job and stay home with her while I work. This caregiver shortage has forced us into the Alice threshold. Not enough money and assets to get by, but too much to be able to access many public benefits. The ALICE threshold is an acronym for Asset Limited, Income Constrained, and Employed. From 2012 to 2019, the number of Wisconsinites living in the ALICE threshold grew by nearly 64,000, according to United for ALICE, a research group that studies people struggling to get by. The biggest driver in the caregiver shortage comes down to pay. 66% of surveyed care workers said that they don't make enough money to pay their bills, and 63% said that they don't get benefits like health care or paid time off. The Survival Coalition found that the average wage for a caregiver in Wisconsin is around $13.50 an hour. The bulk of that pay here in Wisconsin comes from Medicaid. Currently, state law provides caregiving agencies around $19 an hour per patient, spread between administrative costs, insurance, and actual caregiver pay. Thane says other benefits beyond raising caregiver pay are needed. There are other solutions we can look at, too, in addition to wage increases, things like benefits, things like paid time off would make a tremendous difference. I have a caregiver going on vacation in July. We haven't solved that problem yet, but I would. she's been here for four years, five years, and she's not going to get paid for the time she misses with me, uh, and she should. Governor Tony Evers included multiple proposals in his proposed 2023 budget to address the caregiver shortage, including expanding Medicaid, raising caregiver pay, and introducing a new tax credit for qualified family caregivers. But earlier this month, Republicans in the state budget writing committee slashed hundreds of items from the budget, including those three proposals. While the Joint Finance Committee will continue to discuss the budget and may add some of those provisions back into the budget in some capacity, Thane says that he will have to figure out how to compete with higher-paying jobs just to get out of bed. It's just a real struggle to be able to create positions that actually generate you know, a living wage and are meaningful enough that it works for both the caregiver and obviously it needs to work for me too. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wiggy-Hout. Both the American Indian, or Native Alaskan, and non-Hispanic Black communities in Wisconsin experienced a disproportionate number of infant deaths from 2015 to 2019. The data analysis from the Department of Health Services suggests that similar deaths can be prevented in the future if medical professionals address disparities in maternal and infant health care. WORT news reporter Faye Parks has the story. A new study from the Wisconsin Department of Health Services, or DHS, finds that indigenous and black babies continue to die at a significantly higher rate than their white counterparts. This disparity is evident across four periods in development from the birthing parent's health pre-pregnancy through the first year of the infant's life. If indigenous babies died at the same rate as white babies, 42 more infants would have survived between 2015 and 2019. Under the same parameters, 299 more black infants would have survived. The state health department calls those, quote, 
excess deaths, unquote. A 2019 report found that in Dane County, black babies die at least double the rate of white babies. The rate of low birth weight among black infants is also double that of white infants. Public Health Madison, Dane County, which issued that report, pointed to discrimination and structural racism as the driving factors. Dr. Jasmine Zapata, the chief medical officer for maternal health with DHS, agrees with this assessment. She says oppressive systems, not individual shortcomings, are the main driver for this disparity. There are a few specific things that I can talk about as it relates to this. Um, our access to care, there is, are a lot of situations where there is un, uh, unfair and unequal access to care. Um, there's a lot of lack of reproductive autonomy where you're able to choose what you want to happen with your own body. And also there are many populations that face stressful events like food insecurity, housing insecurity, and even the stress over a lifetime of racism. Both groups in question were shown to have excess deaths in all four stages studied, but there was a significant concentration in two key areas. Dr. Zavada points to maternal health pre-birth and infant health in the year following birth as the areas of focus most likely to improve inequities. One area is um, helping with uh, prevent sudden unexpected infant death. And then the other one is working on the, improving the area of low birth weight. Dr. Zapata says the study shows pre-existing inequities in healthcare haven't gotten better in recent years. In fact, the time period studied predates the outbreak of COVID-19 and thus does not include data from the pandemic. Preliminary findings from more recent years suggest that the pandemic only exacerbated these issues. We're not seeing any significant, no significant moves in the right direction. Um, many of these inequities have been pretty persistent over time. However, the new data points to specific areas in need of improvement, and this means DHS can be more precise in their problem solving in the future. Increasing funding for maternal and infant health programs, expanding access to uh, high quality health services, um, ensuring that we have culturally appropriate care, addressing bias in our healthcare systems. Dr. Zabata says that overarching issues such as these require action on several fronts. She pointed to community involvement, either through investment in local government or charity work, and changing perspectives amongst healthcare professionals. She stressed that implicit bias training can be effective, but honest conversations with those affected by racism are extremely valuable. And she says she's noticed an unprecedented education campaign about safe sleeping practices. Traditionally, a lot of the conversation has been around keeping a baby sleep on their back in their own private area, which is important. But many of the conversations over the years have not really elevated or been able to talk frankly about the fact that due to many cultural uh, beliefs, cultural practices, there are some families that that is not their preference. They prefer for their baby to sleep with them. And traditionally, that topic hasn't, has been not talked about or addressed at all. Recently, the American Academy of Pediatrics has updated their advice to be more inclusive and informative. They still say the safest place for a baby to sleep is alone in their own crib or bassinet on their back. However, it actually acknowledges that there are some people and some 
groups uh, due to different cultural and social beliefs that they don't want to do that. And so it actually provides guidance on if you are going to do that, here are the things to consider if you are going to do that. And that's really important because it is one of the first times that I've seen, I've been working on this topic many, many, many years. And it's one of the first times I've seen real raw conversations that include groups that might not want to do what has been traditionally recommended. Last October, DHS dedicated $16 million of federal funding to infant and maternal health equity initiatives. The state's newly established Maternal and Infant Mortality Prevention Unit is focused specifically on these issues. Other federal funding focused on women and children has been used for similar purposes, particularly in food security, safe sleep education, breastfeeding support, and additional doula training. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. After a whirlwind of press conferences, closed-door negotiating, and late-night votes, the Republican-led Assembly voted in favor of a new revised shared revenue plan. While it was passed by the Assembly last night, it still has to make it through both the State Senate and Governor Evers, a task easier said than done. WORT producer Nate Wiegehout spoke with Will Keneally, political reporter with Channel 3000, about the changes to the bill. Well, so yesterday, Republicans put forward a handful of amendments to their shared revenue bill. Uh, so what's what's all changed in that bill? Yeah, so I think the top line, and this largely reflects some negotiations between Republicans and the governor. Um, so the top line is Republicans are trying to target essentially an average increase for all these cities, villages, and counties, an average increase of 10% to the aid that they would get over the next two years. In some of those negotiations with the governor, um, they actually bumped that up now to um, an average of around 15 percent. So locally here for us in Madison, that would mean uh, around a 58 percent aid increase that the city would get. um, And it's, I believe, more than 200 percent increase that the county would get over the next two years. So kind of broadly, as we talk about this aid for cities and counties, that would impact this next budget cycle here um, for the next two years. Then after that, the goal essentially is to tie the state aid to municipalities to kind of uh, a broad prosperity sense, tying it to the state sales tax. So uh, it's 5% in Wisconsin right now. Take 20% of that, a fifth of that, 1% of all sales in Wisconsin. That will be the pool of money that will go after this next two-year cycle in perpetuity. That's what would go to these local cities and counties. Um, Some of the other interesting things that we saw in these negotiations uh, last night were um, a little bit of a softening of what I would call poison pills for largely Democrats and the governor that's included initially in this plan. So Dane County, for example, we'd like to hold these advisory referenda on our county ballots, Um, for example, asking Dane County voters whether they would support legalizing marijuana, for example. So under this proposal, uh, initially, the shared revenue plan would prohibit counties, for example, for putting those advisory referenda on the ballot. Um, that was softened a little bit uh, with some of those negotiations last night. Um, so now that cities and counties can put referenda for uh, capital expenditure projects like building projects, for example, those can go to the county voters. Now, this bill did pass the assembly last night, uh, kind of late after the sun went down last night. And I know that some Democrats are critical about how the the process of how this vote took place. What can you tell me about that? Yeah, what we've heard largely from Democrats was that they were kind of kept out of that negotiation process. 
Um, we're also kind of in the middle of the budget cycle right now, and a lot of the Democrats from that budget committee are saying that they just haven't heard part of those negotiations on this shared revenue bill. So it's largely, I'd say there are kind of a three levers here at work. Um, on the Assembly side, obviously the Assembly Speaker. On the Senate side, the Senate Majority Leader, both Republicans. Then we have the governor being kind of the main uh, Democratic representative in a lot of these discussions here. And then how, what did, what was Robin Voss's response to some of these concerns brought up by Democrats? Yeah, so what we heard from uh, Assembly Speaker Robin Voss essentially last night was he's done negotiating. Uh, he's worked, uh, he would say, like the last six months in earnest um, the last couple of weeks here to hammer out a deal that would be palatable to both Assembly Republicans and to the governor that would hopefully win the governor's signature from his perspective. So he said, look, we've gone through all these negotiations so far. We're essentially done. What the Assembly passed in the uh, kind of waning hours of the evening yesterday, um, that's what Assembly Republicans want to take forward, um, regardless of whatever Evers wants to come back and kind of continue negotiating with, or similarly, what uh, Senate Republicans would want to kind of take back to the drawing board. Voss has said, this is it. This is what Assembly Republicans um, are only willing to sign off on. And we heard a little bit from Democrats last night, too, especially Assembly Minority Leader Greta Neubauer, that this is just not a bill that's quite ready for a prime time, that there is still negotiations that needs to be done on this between um, these kind of three different negotiating parties here. And then while uh, Robin Voss said that he's done negotiating, uh, Senate Majority Leader Devin Lemahue said uh, he, he sort of has a different idea of how this is all going down. And he held a press conference earlier today to sort of talk about that. Tell me about that. Yeah. And so this is kind of interesting. We'll go into, <laughs> into the weeds here for a second. Um, a lot of what kind of the parliamentary procedure has been so far is to advance these kind of placeholder bills and amend it later once they have finished negotiating. Um, so that's what we saw last night in the assembly. A committee the week prior had advanced kind of a, a placeholder bill um, with the original text, knowing that they were going to make some pretty significant changes. That would be an amendment coming out to the floor last night. So what we heard from uh, the Senate Majority Leader is that the original bill that was drafted, um, there are essentially carbon copies on both the Assembly and the Senate side. That carbon copy, uh, kind of the blank slate original bill on the Senate side, that's what is um, going to be going forward for the first part here for the moment. Presumably that will get amended on the Senate side as Senate Majority Leader Devin Lemahieu and Assembly Speaker Robin Voss continue to talk and especially continue to talk with the governor. But we're kind of starting essentially from square one in the state Senate um, as some of these negotiations continue. And Will, do you have just any final thoughts on anything on this whole situation that you would like to share with us here? No, I think the fascinating thing for me, just as a political observer of this, is we haven't seen a lot of rifts among the Assembly Caucus. A lot of what we've seen in the state capitol here is Republicans versus Democrats. Now we have this weird uh, kind of triangle going on where you have two different competing Republican caucuses and a Democratic governor. So it'll be interesting to see kind of how those negotiations continue. Um, I will say this, though. Everybody does agree that this is must pass crucial funding for these municipalities. As we've been looking at these bill hearings, um, as mayors have come in to talk about the funding, they say that this is incredibly crucial for them. Um, Without this funding or with reduced funding, they have to make incredibly hard decisions. Uh, one mayor even mentioning that 
they've had to make the decision to turn off every other street light in their city just to save, I think it was about $200,000. So this stuff adds up. This is crucial funding that really all sides agree must pass at some point. I've been talking with Will Keneally, political reporter with Channel 3000 News, about the shared revenue bill that passed the Assembly last night along mostly party lines. Will, thank you so much for talking with me. Awesome. Thank you. Great to be with you. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with my fellow host, Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. This week on Oddity Box, host D-Star sat down with Tracy Anderson, Community Outreach and Recruitment Manager for Big Brothers Big Sisters, and also former Big Brother Mark Richardson, owner of Unfinished Business. They share the joys of mentorship and the need for men of color to get involved. What's up, everybody? This is your host, D Star, here with Tracy Anderson, Mark Richardson. How is everybody doing today? Oh, doing well. Really good. Are you guys excited? Oh, man, this is going to be fun. Let's talk about Big Brothers, Big Sisters. Right on. Yes, <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> uh, Tracy, uh, for the people that don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, absolutely. I'm the community outreach and volunteer manager at Big Brothers Big Sisters, and I just started about six months ago. Been in Madison for about ten years. I have a vast background uh, in media, event planning, sales, and now I'm here. That's great. How about you, Mark? I've been in Madison since 2000, so a little over 20 years. I'm from Chicago area originally. I've got a company called Unfinished Business, uh, where I work with talent and help them decide what they want to do with their uh, professional lives, find some opportunity for them, and put each other on a path to collide. Talent acquisition, career coaching. So when you say talent, what does that mean? Both of you would be talent, right? Like uh, individuals who work for somebody somewhere want to make a change, right? So they might, okay, I'm done with sales. Uh, let me get out of the radio business. Let me get into the radio business. So anybody who's been doing something, but then wants to do something different. And so I work with them to make sure we know what that picture looks like and then set them on a path to get there. Is it just for people that want to do something different or is it for people that would like to elevate their game also? Either or, you know, I've had clients who thought they wanted to leave an employer right? Like, okay, this isn't working for me. We do the work. What's an opportunity to look like? What do I need more of, less of, whatever? Uh, and I've had a client whose boss came to him after we did that work and said, hey, how's it going? And because we did the work, he could then say to her, here's what's working for me. Here's what's not. And then she said, hang on a minute. Uh, let me see what we can do. Came back in a couple of weeks and created a position for him, elevated him in New York. So it can turn out any number of ways. Talking to you before, I said that your company actually create luck. And what I meant by that was um, preparation meets opportunity equals luck, right? So right on. that's kind of what you do. That's what, you know, hey, uh, I love the way you phrase that. And uh, you're a leprechaun. Uh, <laughs> 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 yeah, somebody needs to find me my pot of gold. Where is that? <laughs> right on. No, it's been great. Uh, I've been doing this for uh, a decade. So 2013, right, time, right about the time you got into the media game, I started my own thing. Yeah. See, people don't know that me and Mark actually have crossed paths many, many, many of times. Uh, first time, I think it was in 2013. Right on. Yep. At Madison Media Institute. Nice. Where I was a student and he was he was actually working. And 
Yeah, I was working on a project to bring the uh, Urban League's Diversity Summit mm-hmm. together with Mad Rep's Economic Development Summit. Mm-hmm. And so, that, in fact, that was my first gig when I left uh, the league in 2013. My first the contract. League, yep, the Urban League. Yep, you know, Urban League of Greater Madison. Uh, my first contract was to take two different events, two separate conferences, summits, combine them. And part of what we were doing is we were embedding, we were embedding some uh, media folks with community leaders so that we could see how they spent their day. And so I went to Madison Media Institute to find some students that wanted to work on the project. And Dee was there in school at the time running running the student. Uh, you, you, weren't you ahead of the student union or the? I was ahead of the student council. Mm-hmm. And I was the president of the chess club and I was the assistant to the dean. So I walk in and I'm I'm like, uh, you know, I'm here for this da-da-da. He's the first guy I see. And then when I came in here today to, to do this, he walks by. I'm like, wait a second. I'm like, we, I'm like, we know each other. And then we tracked it back. Madison is so small. It and is. I just really want to give a quick praise to Mark because I've known Mark for a long time. I've used his services. We met years ago. Oh, wow. You, yes. you've used his services? She was yes. a talent client. Mm-hmm. I was. And I was kind of confused. He is great as far as sitting down with someone. I was very confused about my next steps and where to go. And he really walked me through everything. Very patient, very kind. I've always remembered that about Mark. So. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. So Tracy, what led you to this kind of work? You know, I just kind of fell into it, actually. As I said, you know, I've been in Madison for about 10 years and my career path hasn't been the easiest. You know, I dabbled in a lot of different things. I enjoyed things, but I never felt truly aligned. And when I was leaving, I knew Sandy Morales, our CEO. I knew her. I met her almost 10 years ago when I first moved here. She was great just introducing me to the city. And I believe she had just started a Big Brothers, Big Sisters. We've always kept in touch. But then recently when I was making a job change, she reached out, you know, she found out I was leaving a a job and she said, hey, I've got a community outreach. Would you want to come interview? And it's history. History in the making. Yeah. So why is Big Brothers and Big Sisters so important to the children in the BIPOC community? I would say it's just it's extremely important because right now um, and this is as me as community outreach really getting out there and trying to get bigs for our littles. We have close to 200 kids that are currently on our wait list waiting to be matched for a mentor. And, you know, our kids of color there, they seem to be waiting the longest. So we have about 113 black littles that are currently on our wait list. Wow. And 67 of them are boys. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, I'm I'm just trying to get out there any way that I can, whether it be one-on-one meetings, get in front of businesses, organizations, go to events and just get the word out, get on podcasts. Thank you, D. And just get the word out. We need mentors and we need mentors of color. Absolutely. So, Mark, what inspired you to become a big? We've been bigs for about 14 years now. Uh, our little was eight years old when we were matched with him. He's 22 now. You know, he's got a place of his own. He's doing he's doing things. My wife and I didn't have our own kids. Never really. It wasn't sort of a conscious decision. We just didn't. Right. It was like we check in every couple of years. How you doing? You know, we didn't have that urge necessarily as we were young. And we got a little bit older, got into our jobs, our careers. And we realized, you know, that ship may have sailed as far as having our own. But we had some resources and we had time and we really wanted to give back in the community. So we started investigating, you know. Big Brothers, Big Sisters. And then at the time, I think it was probably like the first year that they were doing the big couple 
thing. So there used to be big brothers, big sisters, right? You could be a big brother, you could be a big sister. But the year we got matched, I think was one of the first years you could be a big couple. So you didn't have to go it alone if you were sort of busy and you weren't sure if you could be there all the time. You had your spouse or your significant other could be there the other part of the time. So we were a big couple. And I think it's a great way to, if you're thinking about adopting, if you're thinking about being a foster parent, I think Big Brothers Big Sisters is a great first step in that direction. And we've probably gotten as much out of it as he did, maybe more. So uh, it's been a great experience. So Tracy, what are some of the things that Big Brothers and Big Sisters does for the kids besides providing mentors? You know, Big Brothers, Big Sisters, we do a lot. You know, we have an event hub where the bigs can actually go on and and look for different events and activities that are going on throughout the city. We do get donations from businesses and different people. You know, you might want to go to a Badger game, a basketball game. Some people get season tickets and they're not able to use it. So donate to us or just free activities too. I know we put on there and then we're really awesome about just staying really busy all year. We have a match anniversary that happens in February where we actually celebrate the matches, how many years they've been together. So that's been awesome. We've got the bowl for kids sake that's coming up. And then we have the hunt that's also coming up, which is countywide scavenger hunt. And I think over 300 people get involved, but bigs and littles get involved and everybody, you don't even have to be a big or a little. And we've got a great holiday party we do. I mean, we keep everybody pretty busy, I think. That was D Star, host of Oddity Box podcast, talking with Tracy Anderson and Mark Richardson. That was just a portion of their full conversation, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts. This week on The House Always Wins, home remodelers and household chore nags, John Stephanie and Allie Barini explain why it's so important to keep putting salt into the water softener, the most mysterious of home appliances. I call it housework, cause it's light work. I'm with those sheets, filling the base to my. I'm John, and I'm Allie, and welcome to the House Always Wins, a place where you can learn cool stuff about your house. Hey, Allie, um, I was talking to a friend, and they were really curious about the what they called uh, the voodoo science of water softeners and what they are. What is a water softener? They're just like, what does it even do? And lots of people know you put salt in it and it keeps disappearing and you keep adding salt and it keeps disappearing and it does something to your water that makes it taste kind of yucky. I once, as a remodeler, I had clients who moved to the area from Colorado where the water there is all from the mountains and from reservoirs. And when I told them, hey, you need to replace your water softener, they're like, what? What are you talking about? And they actually didn't believe me thought I was pulling the wool over their eyes and they're like, sure, you want to replace our water softener. Okay, well, we'll we'll think about that. And I was like, no, no, really, you really want to do this? And they're like, we'll think about it. And job finished and they didn't get it. But I came back about a year later and lo and behold, there sits a brand spanking new water, water softener system. And I was like, oh, I see you guys got a new water softener. They're like, yeah, we talked to the neighbors and we were telling them how we thought we were being uh, bamboozled. And our neighbors are like, oh, no, no, you need to have a water softener. So, yeah, we went out and we got one. So what are water softeners really all about? Well, John, it's actually about ion exchange. Ion exchange. That right. sounds sciencey. Yeah, it's, it is a little sciencey. Uh, so let me set the stage here. Okay. Uh, we get a lot of our water from underground. And that water has been sitting around in limestone bedrock below us. And then we pull it up, distribute it around, and, and open up our tap. And that water has picked up a bunch of calcium, magnesium, other minerals from the rocks that it was just 
living with. And and those those minerals aren't aren't harmful to us per se. Um, and in some cases, they actually kind of make the water taste sort of pleasing. But they can be a, a little, it's a little harder to get your clothes really clean. It, you see these spots on your dishes. Soap. Uh, what happens with soap? Soap, it just doesn't soap. It, it doesn't, doesn't get soapy. It doesn't lather. That's it right. It doesn't lather. That's, that's it. it. Yep. That's it. Soap doesn't lather up. And the other thing is that that those calcium and, and magnesium deposits in the water, they end up kind of gumming up your plumbing system. They end up uh, corroding uh, the inside of your plumbing. It really, it doesn't take very long for it to show up at all. I, we had a job where we took a water heater out that was only five years old that didn't have water, softened water coming through it. And in five years, it went from a brand new hot water heater to being completely trashed. Um, all right. So fair enough. We got hard water and we use water softeners. But how does a water softener take the hard water and make it soft? All right. Well, a water softener, if you've been down in your basement and seen it, there's that tall unit that's called the resin tank. Right. And then there's that sort of squatter unit. That's that's where you put the salt. We that's dump the, all the brine salt in. tank. Um, so what's happening is that as water is, uh, as you're using water, it's actually running through that taller resin tank. Mm-hmm. And that resin tank has sodium ions hanging out on there. And as the water passes through there, it's like, Hey, you want some my calcium? Yeah, here's my sodium. Deal. Bam. Right? So there's an exchange. <laughs> uh, science, I'm telling you. Um, and so as that exchange is happening, your resin tank is kind of running out of that sodium that it needs to make that exchange happen. And so on, on a regular basis, you have that salt from the brine tank cleaning or sort of recharging, I think is the term they use, recharging the resin tank, bringing sodium chloride back onto those. They're actually like funny little beads. Yeah, little beads. Yeah. Teeny uh, tiny little putting, beads. putting the sodium and chloride back onto those uh, beads so that, again, more water can be softened. So that's that's kind of what's going on. You might experience it as uh, what you might experience is is hearing it recharging every once in a while. And I remember the first uh, home I bought, that mm-hmm. first time I heard that, I was like, what is happening downstairs? Oh my God, something there's a major ter- leak. Something terrible is going on. <laughs> For sure. You're like, um, oh my God. Because the water comes out of the out of the thing when this is happening and, and it's all normal. But it, it did scare me because uh, typically these things are set to two o'clock in the morning to happen. Right. Uh, <laughs> So anyway, it's using up salt as it's as it's recharging. That's why you got to keep putting salt in there. And that's also the reason that that salt that you're using up is actually kind of attaching to the water. And that's why you get a slightly salty taste from from softened water. Um, a lot of people would say they, they don't prefer that that taste. Sure, I don't. So tell us, John, what should a homeowner know about their softener? What should they look for if it needs to be serviced or, or heaven forbid, replaced? Heaven forbid. Well, first off, you got to keep putting in the salt. Um, if you let it run out, it no longer softens the water because it's looking. it goes through its recharging system. If there's no salt there, it doesn't uh, do the thing with the things and the, the resin and the exchange, ion exchange, yeah. like you were talking about. Yeah, ion exchange, that's it. But if you've been adding salt and A, maybe it doesn't seem to be going down, or you've noticed you've got someone like my wife at your house and you've noticed the hard water deposits, you can, first off, if you're not sure, you can do a quick test and see if your water softener is working and your water is soft. You can buy kits from the local hardware store. It'll tell you if your water is soft or not soft. If for some reason the water is not soft and it should be, 
then it's time to call your favorite plumber to have them come in and replace your water softener. Plumbers will do it. There's also companies in town who specify, specifically work just on uh, water softening and water systems. So you can call any of those places. Some things to look for in a new water softener. You want to make sure it's the right size. They come in multiple different sizes. So it should be sized correctly for your house. Uh, another important one is some of the old ones, maybe if you walked down there and looked at them and you could hear the tick, tick, tick of the system, they were running off of a meter which means they always recharged at exactly the same time every week, regardless of how much water you actually used. The bad thing about them is you may be gone for two weeks and never used any water, but it goes through and it regenerates anyway and uses up your salt. And when it regenerates, it goes through lots and lots of water and sends it down the drain. So you want one now that's called metered. So what it does is it gauges how much water is run through and it only regenerates when it's used X amount of water and it knows those little beads are all thirsty for more salt. Those are some of the main things. Uh, anything else you want to talk about like when it comes to those? Yeah, I think one thing that uh, some people aren't aware of is that not all of your water is actually supposed to go through the water softener. Typically, the water coming out of your kitchen faucets is not softened water. That'll be hard water because the salt the, the saltiness of that is kind of unpleasant for most people. Oh, uh, yeah. The taste isn't so great. Um, and then similarly, uh, we generally want to have hard water or un, you know not softened water coming through our, our outside hose bibs. So, so, John, does that feel like you've, we've cleared up the mystery of water softeners? I, I think so. I think it totally clears it up. Just remember to put the darn salt in there. Oh, I know. And, I got to remember. I'm reminding myself. It's not just, it's not, not all you out there. It's me. All right. If you have any questions about carpentry or home improvement, why don't you send us an email at thehousealwayswins at wortfm.org. I'm going to throw shapes, filling the base to my feet hurt. I call it housework. In this archival edition of Radio Chipstone, Kate Dallas, curator at Old World Wisconsin, tells contributor Jennifer Fields that kites were for more than just fun and games. There's one wonderful story of a Chinese general who was besieging uh, another Chinese city, and he had to calculate how he was going to get inside these almost impenetrable walls. So what he decided to do was to fly some kites to determine how far it would be for him to tunnel from outside of the wall, under the wall, and well into the city. So he flew kites, measured the length of the string, and made his calculations and was able to tunnel in and uh, defeat those people in the city. So talk to me about kites in this atmosphere. Set the scene for me and tell me who would have been playing with them or who would have been using them, maybe outside of play. Right now, in the 1870s, Kites are being thought of as popular recreation, especially for young boys. There were articles being published in popular home magazines of the 1860s, 70s, and then later in the 1880s and 90s, directed at the parents of young boys. So this is from the popular recreator. It's a household periodical in 1873. It says, it is not to be wondered at that kite flying is a highly popular amusement. Few recreations have so much and none have more to be said in their favor. It is to be pursued to begin with in the open fields and the fresh air. It is unattended by danger 
and yet not without its adventures. It affords healthy exercise and the glorious excitement, too, of almost established communication with the distant clouds. Okay, that's sweet. Very poetic, isn't it? It's very... It's, it's, it's also very manipulative. It's oh like my saying, <laughs> if you don't do this for your child, then they're not yes. going to be healthy and they're not going to be... Yeah, so it's kind of the scientific, a leaning toward the scientific child rearing, right? And this idea of certain healthful activities are healthful. It keeps you uh, playing in a good crowd of people. If you're doing this, you're not getting into trouble. So now you've got these young boys flying kites. Are these kites that they're waiting to come in on the Wells Fargo wagon? No, they're kites that they make themselves. And these periodicals, these magazines, had all kinds of great directions, instructions for how to make kites in all sorts of fanciful shapes, from something that's as simple as a hoop, where you would take the wooden hoop from a flower barrel and carve it down or split it so that you had a a thin hoop, you could cover it with fabric or tissue paper and with some paste and paper and have a little twine and you'd have your own hoop kite. You could make them in all kinds of fanciful shapes, animals like birds, um, human forms with soldiers were a popular form to make. And then you could paint it, decorate it as you liked. And people got really, boys got really creative with uh, um, attachments. You know, most of these kites required tails. So we think of tails sometimes just as a simple tissue bow tied on the end of them. But there were all sorts of star shapes and paper cones that were added to these tails to help uh, finesse the flying. So it was more than just a simple toy. It could become very complex. There were kite competitions for young boys closer to 1900 in some of the uh, urban areas in America. Let's take a look at some of the kites you have here. This kite looks like someone who's either really happy or really mad. <laughs> this is the, the, the big-headed man kite. And he really is an interesting build because he... His head is formed with one of those hoops, but his body is formed by straight sticks that are tied onto the hoop and extend down below the head portion. And then there's a, a horizontal piece of wood that goes across the bottom and helps to form the feet. And the whole thing is, is quite gaily decorated, I think, here with watercolor paints. And those were, that's, that was one of the decorating choices people had in the 19th century. They had access to lots of to watercolor paints. And then sometimes tissue paper was pasted on, too, to add a little extra to it. So he's smiling away at us. I'm glad it's a smile. Yes. So when I think about leisure time, especially during this time period. It, to me, always seemed a folly of the wealthy. It didn't seem in my head that farm kids, German, German immigrant kids working on the farm would have time for this. It was when there, when there were free moments. And there were, I think, you know, certainly spring is a very busy time on the farm in terms of planting. But once you have your fields plowed up and your seed in the ground, there's a little lag time. There's, there are always chores to do around the house that kids helped with, things like splitting wood or bringing wood in, um, all kinds of tasks during the day and helping with cooking. But I think children, too, had, had playtime, and, and parents allowed them that. Kate, on a day like today, kind of windy, kind of blustery, 
would this, do you have to sort of judge which kite you're going to use by the weather? Because I could not imagine a paper kite surviving this. You know, I am a kite novice myself in terms of flying, so I think we should just go out and try out our, our model kites. I don't know how well we'll do it. It's pretty. It almost took off from you right yeah. here. We'll just see if you can do it from here. Okay, ready, set, go. Oh, yeah, it's up. Jennifer, you got it. Oh, oh, it was up. See, you got a little reinforcement there. It went up. Oh. <laughs> I think our little kite experiments determined that you have to have flat ground, good knees, and running shoes. <laughs> I agree. Because <laughs> <laughs> while it may have been scientifically helpful for young people, I could have ended up in the hospital. <laughs> but you didn't, and don't you feel refreshed from I all do. that great exercise in the fresh air? For WORT, I'm Jennifer Fields. And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at 6. Your headline writer was Peter Voller. Your script editor was Russ Mackey. Your reporter this evening was Faye Parks. Special thanks to feature contributors D. Starr, John Stephanie and Ali Barini, and Jonifer Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Wiggy helped produce this newscast. And Ms. Shali Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Be sure to subscribe to the WORT Local News as a podcast. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening and good night. <laughs>